welcome to Hackstack Level 3. We will now be giving you all the hacks you need to build deeper connections and stronger relationships with the people you care about. To get the most out of this show, please listen to the basic training of the first two levels, starting with episode number one. And now, let's start hacking. Here's your host, Coz. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 22. We are going to keep marching on and we are going to learn how to be more adept and more skilled at our relationships and in particular the marriage relationship or you know better yet just trying to understand the opposite sex try to understand where they are coming from get some insight from their perspective and what better way to do that then play a bunch of audio clips, which is what we typically do on this show. And we are going to add to our guest speakers. You know, we've had many great speakers on this show. Oh, yes, many. Would you say I have a plethora? Yes, I would say we've had a plethora of speakers. We featured a good old Southern boy in Zig Ziglar, a guy from the streets with a rough life in Eric Thomas. We've also featured authors and actors and entrepreneurs, psychologists, comedians. But you know what's missing? Every show needs an interview with a female bodybuilder. And what can you learn from a female bodybuilder? Well, you're about to find out a little bit later in the show. But that does set the tone for what I'm going to call the girl power episode. Because every one of these clips is given by a woman or an interview with a woman. And we are going to glean some serious wisdom from these discussions. So if you're a woman listening to this podcast, rest assured that you're going to get a lot out of this. I think you'll start to realize that you're not alone in some of your struggles. There's a lot of people going through the same things. The man in your life may make just a tad more sense after listening to some of this stuff. And for you men out there, well... It's kind of interesting. How, how is the best way to put this? I want you to picture a cute little puppy dog in your head. So you know when the puppy hears like a strange noise and his head tilts a little bit and his ears perk up and he's got this look of utter confusion on his face? That's pretty much how men feel when it comes to women. Just totally confused, not understanding anything. But today, by sitting in on some of these conversations the men will get to pick up a whole lot of information and a whole lot of insight, and you'll be able to understand and empathize a whole lot better with some of the things that are going on in your wife's mind and life. And I think it will be all around beneficial to everyone. So to start things off, we are going to play another clip from the Andy Savage show. And the title of this show was called The Mommy Wars. And it's basically just an interview with several mothers. And they talk about some of the struggles they have and just some of the judgmental comments or vibes they get from other women that have maybe decided a different path with their family. And that just causes some some strife and disagreements sometimes. So it's really cool to hear what they talk about. And uh, from my perspective, it was really interesting at the end to hear uh, how some of the husbands helped their wives out in some of those situations. So we're going to warm up with this clip and we're going to gain some good perspective. And we're going to start right now. Here it is. In the studio with me, I have a stellar group of ladies here today, completely outnumbered. I have my lovely wife, Amanda, who is right here beside me. Hello. And I have Mary Jane May. Hi. As well as a longtime favorite, not been here in a while, Miss Alyssa Roberts is with us today. Hello. Well, we are so glad to have you ladies here. And we are talking about a hot 
topic, one that I see lots of blogs out there about. I, I hear lots of chatter out there about this. When we talk about family here on the Andy Savage Show, we're always trying to help people win at home and figure out life with raising kids and marriage and family life issues. And this issue of what it means to be a mom, whether you are a stay-at-home mom or a working mom, there's always this kind of clash of ideals, clash of, of opinions, and all this debate surrounding this issue. And so today I want us to see if we can at least talk about some of the key components of this and maybe to some degree settle the debate or at least maybe the better way to say it is to settle down the debate because sometimes there's a lot of uh, very harsh comments made towards uh, one another in this debate. And because I'm not a mom, I wanted to make sure we had some mom power in the room. And so we have lots of that today. So we're going to jump into this. We've talked about this subject at length and you have your own different seasons of life where you have all been working. You have at different times been at home. We're going to talk about how this works in your lives and then maybe help equip some of those moms out there. If you're just tuning in with us, we want want you to know that you can tune into the Andy Savage Show every Wednesday right here on AM 640 at 3 p.m. And we encourage you to do that each week. And if you can't get near a radio, you can always go to our podcast. Just get on iTunes, search my name, Andy Savage, and you can subscribe to our podcast and you can take the Andy Savage Show anywhere you go. And so let's jump into this uh, discussion, ladies. And uh, this whole issue of stay-at-home mom versus working mom. I remember a few years ago, you were working on our staff at High Point, and then you at some point had a child and worked and was home and went back and forth a little bit. Yeah, I was working full-time before our first, and then after Lydia was born, I worked part-time, mainly from home, so we was kind of doing both and and then after our second was born, Charlotte, I came home full-time to well, be a stay-at-home mom. So I've kind of been across the board. These were strategic decisions you and your husband made over the years as family life and the seasons began to change. Now, Mary Jane, tell us your situation and how you have been in this whole discussion. When our first child was born, I continued to work full-time. I did go down to a reduced schedule where I was able to work four days a week instead of five, but it's still full-time. Then over the years, I have been able to decrease to now that I am part-time, and I'm able to do some of that from home as well. Very cool. And Amanda, I know your situation, but let our listeners know what you do. I am a stay-at-home mom and have been since our first child was born. I went to work the day before he was born and then never went back again. That was over 10 years ago. Love to make people aware of this fact because I see it firsthand every single day. The phrase, working mom applies to every mother I know, right? There's no such thing as a mom who's not working. So it's a matter of mom finding an income somewhere else at at different stages of life or times. But all of you moms are working moms, and some of you have jobs that bring home a paycheck. And so those are the things that we want to talk about. But here's the thing. We hear this debate rage all the time. Why is there such a debate over these two places in life among women? I think it all goes back to comparison. The thing that we love to talk about just gets manifested in a huge way when you get to the whole stay-at-home mom versus working mom debate. I think it's just us looking for validation of whatever decision I've made is the right decision. So sometimes that leads us down the path of, okay, well, if this is the right decision for me, that means people who've made a different decision is the wrong decision. And I think today in our show, we really want to talk about that and to look at that and maybe to debunk some of those things that women have started to believe about, okay, there's a right or a wrong decision for everybody and kind of look at some of the nuances between different situations and different family lives. Because we certainly live in an environment, at least in the South, Southern United States, where uh, I don't have any research on this, but the predominant 
theme you hear, particularly from generations that are a little older than us, is stay-at-home mom is the right answer and working mom is the wrong answer. You hear that a lot. You hear that rhetoric a lot. As we look at the Scripture, I don't think we can land there and say that one's right and one's wrong. And I think that's where we have to take our cues as God's Word. We have to say there's a lot of freedom here to make these decisions. And so if a mom chooses to stay at home, there's some things we have to look out for. There's some good guidelines we need to uncover there. And then if a mom chooses to go to work and bring home an income, we have to look at the guidelines and the guardrails that need to be in place there. So let's dive into some of this. And Mary Jane, I want to turn to you uh, as as the, the working mom in the room today. By working mom, I mean mom with a job bringing home <laughs> an income. And so what are some of the things that you think through as a working mom as you balance having a job and bringing home an income managing your part in a marriage and raising your children for me it's really important to remember that i need to excel in all these areas but i can't be perfect in all these areas Mm -hmm. and there's got to be a balance of figuring out what my priority needs to be and how i'm going to achieve that and let some of the other stuff just go i feel like there's a lot of pressure to do all of it and do all of everything perfectly. I think people who stay home feel that same way. But I just have learned over time that I cannot carry around guilt for not being home all the time. And the times when I am home, I need to remember that I have a purpose that I'm doing and do it well. And one of the things that came in our discussion prior to coming into the studio that I heard from all of you ladies was moms are feeling pressure in every season of life. There's pressure for moms who are staying at home. There's pressure for moms who are going to work every day. There's just this overwhelming pressure seemingly in the world of moms out there. And then there's this guilt that you're mentioning, Mary Jane, on both sides of the coin of moms who are working may feel guilty about not being at home enough. And then there are moms at home who feel guilty that they're not living out their dreams and chasing some of their strengths and desires that are out in the world. So there's a lot of guilt and pressure on all these moms. And so What are some of the ways that you deal with, Amanda, some of the pressures and some of the guilt maybe of dealing with some of these challenges? Because I know that in our lives, we've had lots of discussions that have caused us to change some of the way we operate in order to maximize some of your gifting so that you can actually get out of the house more and use some of your gifting outside of our home. You know, we've been into the parenthood journey for 10 and a half years now, almost 11 years. And so... As your kids get older and as they enter into some different seasons in life, you begin to see how you can maybe handle some things differently. You begin to see that there are some different freedoms that pop up. You begin to understand that you can create some freedoms. I know when I first stayed at home, I thought, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be a breeze. I'm going to have all this time to do whatever I want and, you know, have this cute little baby that goes along with me. And it wasn't like that because he didn't sleep when I wanted him to or he didn't sleep as long or, you know, he needed attention instead of, you know, me being able to do what I wanted. But as we have been parents longer and in this journey longer, you begin to kind of just settle into it. You make some relationships with people that are kind of in the same season of life and stage of life that you can encourage one another, you can push each other, but you also can start to prioritize the things that are important to you as you know, in whatever you're doing. And so I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do this. And I'm going to let some of the other stuff not be as important. And I'm going to let myself, I'm going to give myself a break on doing some of these other things. But I know that I can do some of these areas really well. And so I'm going to do the best that I can to excel in those areas. Each of you have strengths and each of you have desires. And all of you have desires related to being a mom and raising your kids. But your desires and your dreams aren't limited to simply raising kids. 
And I think that some of what gets lost in this discussion is there's such an emphasis, and there should be an emphasis, on parenting our kids and raising our kids. And we talk about it all the time on this show right here. However, family life and life in general is more complex than that. There's a desire for all of us to fulfill our God-given calling even beyond the role of parenting. So there's this balance that seems to be there that needs to be struck between my strengths, my calling, my gifting from God, my sense of mission in this world, and then my responsibilities. And sometimes those worlds overlap, and sometimes they don't. And we have to figure out how to navigate those issues and do everything well. Because there's no doubt we cannot delegate the role of being a mom or a dad. There's only two people in the world that can do that, the mom and the dad. That's where the emphasis has to come back to, what are my responsibilities and am I fulfilling those? At the same time, there are some God-given things that each of us have been called to do and been given gifts to do that we are the only one that can do that also. And so there has to be this balancing act of figuring out where those worlds align and try to figure that out. One of the things that we hear a lot in this debate is my job's harder than your job. This is where some of the debate, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, Alyssa. What is going on with wives and moms who are always arguing over whose job is harder? What's the deal with that? Yeah, I mean, we get into this whole discussion of where we're trying to one-up. We all said this. We all feel this coming from each of our different areas, but we get into this discussion where we're trying to one-up each other and, oh, I have it harder. No, I have it harder. No, I have it harder. When the truth is being a mom is hard, period. The moment that first child, and even if you are longing to be a mom and you're not yet a mom, it's still hard. The moment that you'd have that desire placed in you, I I think the journey begins, and it's a hard journey, a worthwhile one, but hard. So one of the things that we were all talking about before we came on the air was just this comparison and this trying to one-up when really we need to be each other's biggest advocates, each other's biggest cheerleaders. And moms in general, like nobody should have each other's backs like moms because it is hard, and we all face difficulties and hardships every day, but we don't need to turn on each other. I guess we have enough hard stuff to deal with that we don't need to add to it by criticizing or discouraging or making sure that that other person feels like what they're dealing with isn't as significant as something that we're dealing with, that type Mm -hmm. thing. So I feel like just for us to make it practical, to go out of our way to encourage another mom who might be in a situation, instead of us trying to one-up them, to take a moment to listen to them and to try and encourage them in that situation could go a huge way to helping ourselves as well as to helping that other person. Moms really need to have a support network of good friends and good mentors in their life. Mandy, speak to that. Well, when I became a stay-at-home mom, I really kind of felt isolated. I felt like I did not have any friends at that point in time that had little babies like I did. You know, most of my friends either weren't married yet or they were working or there was some reason why I couldn't connect with other moms that were at home and were kind of in that same season of life. So as I have kind of moved out of that and I've added some activities to my life, then I have found that having a better support network of people that are kind of living this thing out the same way I am, we can be an encouragement to each other. And that instead of you know, us getting on the phone or texting or getting on social media and saying, oh, it's so hard and being a parent is so hard and da, 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 then we can encourage each other and say, yes, it is hard, but here's how you can handle that situation. Or look, I've got one five years older than your oldest one. And here are some of the freedoms that come. Here's some of the light that's at the end of the tunnel. Here's some ways that your relationship with your children is going to change or your relationship with your friends is going to change over that time. And then to have mentors that can speak into your life and they can say, This is a season of life, 
and you see where I am now and you want to be where I am now, but I've already been where you are. And so you've got to take the time to go through each stage and then you get, whether you want to call it freedom or opportunities to do some of the other things that you kind of have dreams of doing. This issue of season of life seems to be a big deal. There's no doubt that we are all in one season of life or another, and there are challenges in every season of life, just like there are opportunities in every season of life. Mary Jane, what would you say are some pieces of advice you would give moms in a season of life where they may feel a little bit discontent with where they are? When you wake up in the morning and you're having your priority time or you're spending time with God and you need to think for your day, what am I going to do today? One, to please God and to fulfill what I need to be doing for him. But two, I only get to date with my kids. I only have today to make an impact in their life. And what kind of impact is that going to be? Mm. If I'm not present and I'm not parenting, whether it's an easy day or a hard day, what does that mean in the long run for my kids? I don't get today over. Nobody gets today over. So if I go into it thinking I need to be intentional, we only have those 7,000 days, right? Sure. I have to be intentional today to win for my family, to win for my kids. And that gives it kind of a better perspective. Days when I don't take the time to think that way, I end up at the end of the day going to bed thinking, man, I missed an opportunity. I really had a chance that I could have breathed life into my kids and done something better for my family, and I missed it. Mm. So I think it's trying to be intentional. And I know we talk about down the road, life changes. You think, my kid will never be one again. I'll never have that stage again. So even though it might have been hard to have a one-year-old, I'll never get to experience that again. So I want to be able to live in now and enjoy now because I don't. I won't get to do it again. You get to the end of some days and you feel like we survived. That's all you can say about the sure. day is we survived. But you don't want that to be every day. There are going to be days like that. But just like Mary Jane's saying, you want something that you can cling to. It might have been a five-minute conversation with one of your children in the car on the way home from school or dropping them off. It might be just y'all laughing at something that night as you're getting into bed. You're having a story time or something like that. But some of the days you're just going to get through and you're going to say, we survived that one. But you don't want that every single day. You don't want to just feel like, okay, I'm literally just surviving this long period of time. And I think what I love in, in that discussion is this idea that maybe gets lost on people is if I only had X, Y, and Z, if my life only looked this way or looked like somebody else's life, then it would be easier. What you're describing, Mary Jane, is an attitude difference. It's choosing to say, you know what, this is the only day I have. And my attitude and how I approach things makes the difference. Because here's the thing. Whether you're a mom who goes to work every day or a mom who stays at home, you can have a bad attitude and turn that life season into a bad season because of your attitude. So maybe this discussion, maybe this is not really a debate over stay-at-home mom versus working mom. Maybe this debate is really about my attitude about my season in life. This is one of those things that we see so often is, Mary Jane, you're a perfect example of it, and other moms who have jobs who are outstanding parents. They have not abdicated their parenting role. They have not neglected their children. They're wonderful parents. They have just been intentional, and they've had good attitudes about their season in life, and they have made the most of every day. And so I don't think the decision to work or not work is really the issue. It really comes down to this attitude we have. Well, I completely agree with that because I think you can be a stay-at-home mom and have a terrible attitude mm-hmm. and not be as intentional with your children. You know, you can be looking at ways to escape and you're not spending time. You're not building in some of those conversations and some of those little fun activities. And then you miss opportunities to see where you are building into their lives. But I think the other thing growing along with that 
if you are a mom, then you are called to be a mom. And so I think if we look at that, you know, I'm called to be a mom. Mary Jane's called to be a mom. Alyssa's called to be a mom. And so however we flesh that out, that is still our calling. And so Mm -hmm. we are fulfilling that when we are living in that and we are being intentional in that. And we are saying, hey, yes, this is my calling and I'm going to live in this and I'm going to do the best that I can do in this calling. Well, I think those are wise words for people listening today. And if you are listening today, we are talking with Alyssa, Mary Jane, and Amanda. These are three great moms that are weighing in on this discussion about staying at home versus working moms. That's a debate that lots of people are having, lots of chatter on Facebook, lots of very heated arguments over this issue. And I would say, One of the places this argument is maybe as heated as anywhere is in the church. There's lots of people who judge one another and are very condemning over each other's decision regarding their families. And what we just uncovered in this last little segment was this attitude about your season in life might be the defining factor. It might be the bigger issue than what decision you made really comes down to how you're handling it and making those good decisions. And Amanda, as you weighed in on the stay-at-home moms even who seek to escape their children, you could very well put two moms next to each other, one who has a full-time job and goes to work every day, who is an intentional mom with her children, may be a better mom than the mother who is at home trying to escape her children with Facebook and Pinterest and watching TV and trying to get away from her kids. The working mom might actually be more engaged in her children. Well, and I think stay-at-home moms can even look at it and go, I'm at home with my kids all the time, so they can handle me sitting over here and doing something Mm. for myself. Whereas a working mom might have a different attitude of, I've only got these hours in the day, and so I've got to capitalize on this time. What do you guys think about this issue of moms complaining about their lives and their kids and their role as a mom and all that? There's a slope. When you're realistic and honest about the difficulties that come with being a mom or, you know, the hardships that come, and then there's complaining to where you've totally lost perspective of why you're doing what you're doing, And you've just gone to, oh, woe is me, and this is such an awful life that I'm living. The former, when you're just being realistic and honest, allows you to not sugarcoat things and not to pretend like everything's rose-colored or that type thing. But it allows you to be able to get some perspective. And Mary Jane spoke about the priority time in the morning. And I know a lot of times in the morning, I'll think back on what happened the day before and what God's teaching me. And God will just kind of start to weave these two together to where I'll see, okay, this thing that my child is going through is also something that God's kind of working with me during my priority time and during my time spent in his word. And for me, it comes out when I'm processing in my writing or or in my running. But that's when I'm able to kind of see, okay, these things God's weaving all together and It's not about me just saying, okay, this is what I'm not happy with right now. It's really about me understanding that God uses hard things to be able to teach me good lessons. Mm -hmm. So I think to know that there's a point to all of it and that it's not supposed to be easy and it's not supposed to always be something that just goes super smooth. There might be something that God's trying to teach us in those difficult moments to maintain that perspective and also just to remember the gratitude. I say all the time that my youngest, she's two. And I say that God gave her blonde curls and blue eyes for a reason. He knew she was going to be super feisty. And he knew that when I looked at her, sometimes I would think I'm about to pull my hair out. But he also knew, okay, she's going to make me laugh like nobody else can make me laugh. And so I think it's understanding, yes, there are difficult seasons. But sometimes just to remember, what am I really grateful for at the end of the day? It's the chance to be able to mold these children to love God more. For me, too, if I allow myself to get into the attitude of complaining, and especially if I'm going and talking to somebody else and complaining, 
anymore. That negativity builds up in me. And when I'm around my kids, it comes out. I am much more negative towards my kids. And then I wonder why they're negative back at me. Like it's a huge vicious cycle. And sometimes we don't think about, I am making this worse. Well, and I think too, when you are negative all the time and you're kind of in this, you're living in this negativity, then you can't even see when there's positive stuff. Mm. And so when things go well for a day or things go smooth for a day, you're just thinking all of life is negative. And so you're not seeing these great little people that your kids are. And especially as they get older, you know, I think one of the neat things about having kids get older is you start to see the fruition of some of the things that you've been building into them. You know, especially for ours that are kind of five and older, you start to see them have conversations or make decisions based on all these things that you've been teaching them and saying to them since they were little bitty. And you start to be able to go, wow, I do make a difference in these kids' lives and they do listen to me and I am making a difference in the world. Love that thought that complaining blinds us to the positives. Good word for everybody, mom or not. But I think it definitely plagues moms out there that are constantly caught up in complaining about their stage of life. I want to switch gears with the time we have remaining. And I want to hear from you ladies regarding how your husband has been supportive. And I know every mom listening does not live in a family necessarily that has a husband involved. Some single moms are out there doing their best to balance this world of raising children and working. But there are a lot of dads and husbands out there listening right now who are wondering, man, how can I be a better support to my wife and the mother of my children. I would love to hear from your experiences. Of course, Amanda's right here, so she's going to (laughs) say great things about me. But let's hear from all of you about what support has been there for you from your husband and how has that made a difference in how you have been able to be successful as a mom? For me, we made the decision that I would work and that I would continue to work. My husband is excellent in finding my strengths and pushing me to use those more. So he's really good at speaking that into me. He's also been very forgiving when certain like household tasks aren't done. Like we've had to rearrange our priorities and our level of of expectations. And he's been really good and supportive in that way as well. I think two things. One, the financial side of it to obviously if I was working, there would be some additional income that varies based on what the job would be, but there would be some additional income. So the affirmation from my husband that it's okay, that we've made a decision together, a mutual decision together, that our income is going to be a little bit less for me to be able to do this thing that we decided on. And the second one is I remember a discussion Matt and I had where I kind of pointed out to him how much it meant when he said something positive about my writing or he noticed a blog that he enjoyed or that type thing. I said to him that that just means a lot to me because that sort of validates who I am as a person instead of just something that I'm doing. Like if he were to say, hey, wow, the house is really clean. I mean, I'm grateful that he noticed, but it doesn't really fuel me in the same way as when he notices something about my writing or something that I'm really passionate about. I've noticed just him going out of his way to always read those and to always comment on them. And that just does a lot to fuel me as a stay-at-home mom that I'm still receiving that affirmation, that validation in terms of who I am and not just in what I do. One of the responsibilities of husbands is to really key in on what your wives are good at and to encourage them in those things. You have been very good at doing that with me and just saying, here, I see where your strengths are. You need to do more of that. You need to pursue that. And then giving me the outlet to pursue those things. And then the other thing that I think you have done very well is you have never said if things were different, if you were working, then da, 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 you know, then whatever. Never been made to feel like you wish things were different. Ladies, we are out of time, and I appreciate all of you coming here and weighing in. I think this is great stuff. Okay, so there was a lot of cool things in that clip. 
But I really want to only focus on one thing right now, and that was how the husbands were able to support the wife and just have a better understanding of what the wife was going through. And one mother stated it, um, I think she said, you know, we just got on the same page, which obviously involves communication. And I think that was in reference to like cleaning the house, you know, what the expectations are on cleaning the house. And that just goes back to what we talked about earlier, becoming a student of your spouse. Because to get on the same page, you have to know what's important to your spouse. And the one story that really, really sticks out for me is the wife that mentioned, you know, she's like, I really didn't care whether my husband noticed that I cleaned the house or not. But it meant a whole lot to me when he said that he liked my writing. So what's going on there? The husband is trying to be proactive and compliment and validate his wife. But in one instance, she doesn't care a whole lot about what he's saying. And in the other instance, she's really validated by what he says. And this is a really good time to take a quick time out and talk about uh, a concept or actually a book called The Five Love Languages. Now, some of you guys may have read that book book before or heard of the concept. If you haven't, it's it's probably a must read. It's, it's a relatively straightforward and simple concept. Uh, so I'm going to play a clip to get everyone up to speed. It's a really quick clip. And our friend Vanessa Van Edwards, who is making a cameo appearance on the show, is going to talk about what the five love languages are and what that actually means. So I think this will be a, a nice setup and really helpful for the rest of the episode. So let's roll that right now. Our next guest says that uh, the five love languages aren't just for romance. Here to explain, we're happy to welcome back the author of Human Lie Detection and Body Language 101, Vanessa Van Edwards. Nice to see you again. Yeah, we're talking about love today. Yeah, I, like like I got to ask you, what is love language? Because I mean, I, I could I could try to answer that, but I have a feeling I would be wrong. No, I think we, I think you'd be right, actually. Dr. Gary Chapman is the one who coined this term. A love language is how we express our love and affection and how we feel most love and respected. So it's not verbal. Not only verbal. So there are five different love languages. And what's interesting is Dr. Gary Chapman realized that so many couples and friends and colleagues, you feel like you're expressing love, but they don't hear it, or you feel underappreciated. So he realized that people speak in different love languages, and there are five of them. All right, let's break them down. Yes. Uh, quality time. Yes. So people who have a, usually you have a primary one, like as we go through these, you might be like, oh yeah, that's me. Mm -hmm. So People who have quality time as their love language, they just want to spend time together. They want to hang out all day, go on road trips, have date nights. So if your partner or your colleague, it doesn't have to necessarily be romance, it can also be in business and friends, for them the way that they feel the most appreciated is to have special time just carved out for them. That's how they feel most heard and understood. For example, I used to make my dad these elaborate Christmas gifts, you know, hand-sewn ties and rosemary jam, and he'd be like, Thanks for this thing. And I'd be like, I spent days slaving over that. But what I realized is he speaks quality time. What he would prefer as a gift is to spend the whole day hanging out, watching right. football, you know, hang, walking around, going to the park. And so that made me realize that he wasn't feeling appreciated by my laboring. He just wanted to spend time with and, me. And, and you say that there are people who need that quality time, and then there are also people that need to give that quality exactly. time. Exactly. So for them, when they want to show that they respect and love you, they keep asking to hang out. 
right? Let's go on a date. Let's go hang out for the day. Let's go away for the weekend. And so that's what they're saying is that's how I feel loved and appreciated by you. So that's the first one. And physical touch. Physical touch is the second one. So this is not just intimate physical touch. It's also hugging, massaging, just like a, a touch on the forearm or a pat on the back. So I had a friend who used to walk shoulder to shoulder with me. And it would drive me crazy. I'd be like, why is she in I'm my space? I'm nervous just hearing the story. Right. <laughs> she was, I was like, why is she in my space? What I realized is once I discovered love languages is she is physical touch. She'd always want to give really big bear hugs when we first met. So I would start to link arms with her. When we walk, we link arms. She lights up. She feels so close to me because she wants that physical touch. So for physical touch, it's very important to make sure that you're hugging, um, putting a hand on the arm, in the workplace, you've got to be careful. Yeah, right, of course. Uh, <laughs> did I learn that the hard way? All right, but uh, the, uh, uh, if you are, are with somebody, let's say in a, in a relationship, yes. um, and, and they want any one of these things, yes. they're, they're one who needs that to yes. feel the love, but you're not naturally one who gives that to feel the love. Can you force yourself or do you need to force yourself to be one who gives that, even if it's not your yes. natural physical so great la questions. language of love? Great question. So my husband is physical touch, although that is not one of my primary love languages. So I know that to respect him, to make him feel like he is being cared for, I will purposely, when I see him, I always make sure that I give him a hug and a kiss. I make sure that when I'm sitting next to him, I always hold his hand. By the way, if, you're, if you have a spouse, it's always like, hold my hand, hold my hand. They're probably physical touch. Yeah. Um, that's why they want that connection. So it's not necessarily forcing yourself. It's saying, you know, I care about this person. I want to make sure that they know I care about this person. Uh, the other one is gifts. Right. So third is gifts. And this doesn't have to be large gifts. It can be small trinkets. Every time you go on a trip, bringing them back a little something. Mm -hmm. Going to the grocery store, picking up their favorite candy. So my, one of my employees is gifts. And I didn't know this. So I would take her out to lunches. I would try to write nice notes for her. But what I realized is she actually just loved little trinkets. So for her birthdays, for Christmas, I always bring her something. Fourth of July, I bring her a little cupcake. Easter, I make her a little basket because that's just the way that she feels loved. So giving those little things. But, um, and the, kids are often gifts, right? Always. Usually they like those gifts yeah. and they can change. All right, so. very quickly because we have two more to get through. Yes. Acts of service. Acts of service is mine. So this is doing for someone, helping them. Um, if you have a spouse who has a long to-do list and loves to tell you about it, mm -hmm. Probably acts of service. Okay. Um, so for me, I always like to feel like if you take out the trash, if you help me with a project, that's the best way someone feels cared about. And the last one is, um, so uh, uh, words of affirmation. Right. Which I think is mine. Yes, and this is because you like to hear. I like to hear. I don't necessarily compliment or say nice things, but I like to hear them. So always telling the person that you care about them, that's the way they're going to feel mm -hmm. loved. Uh, and, and, and so how do you recognize that that's that person? How do, how do you recognize that you're the person important to you wants affirmation? Sure. So for you, it's the one that feels like, as I'm explaining it, that's me. For them, it's what they always ask for, what they complain about missing. So I wish you would help me more around the house probably acts of service. Right. I wish you would tell me more that you loved me. Probably words of affirmation. Would you hold my hand when we go out? I want to hold your hand when we're walking. Physical touch. So it's usually what they're asking for. So in other words, if they're complaining about the same thing over and over again, that's your clue. Right. And it's not bad, right? We don't need to judge someone. It's just that, okay, they, they receive love a different way. Very quickly, the person who feels, because each one of these is someone who needs it, someone who their, their language is to give it. Uh, are there people who their, their language of love is to give affirmations? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And, and sometimes the way that you like to receive love is different than the way that you like to give it. And that's okay, too. The important thing about the love languages is just being aware that it might be different for different people. Fascinating. Always good to talk to you. Thanks for Thanks being for here. Thanks for having me. So you can now consider yourself educated in knowing what the five love languages are.
And when me and my wife first came across uh, this book, we started talking about it and like, hey, what's your love language? What's my love language? So I went first and I said, you know, looking at this list and I'm thinking, I'm thinking acts of service. I'm a productivity kind of guy. I like to get things off the checklist, like to do things. Um, I like to do things for people and for you, my lovely wife. So I'm thinking acts of service is probably my love language. So I go, Hey babe, what, what do you think your love language is? She's like, well, I think I like words of affirmation. I really like when, you know, you validate me and and tell me that you love me and things like that. I'm like, Oh, okay. But she's like, ah, you know what? I really like, I really like gifts too. I'm like, Oh, so so you're bilingual in your love language. Well, you know, I really like quality time as well. <laughs> so I'm like, you're trilingual. And then I just, I don't know what, what comes after tri, quad, and then keen, I guess, because she was all of them. So I, I had my hands full. I had to make sure I covered <laughs> I covered my bases pretty well. And um, she spoke every love language pretty strong. Uh, I think it took us about two years before she actually said to me, you know, I think my number one love language is quality time. And you know, now that I think about it, I think maybe she's just playing a game with me to make me work harder. That's <laughs> that's pretty tricky. I have to watch out for that girl. Anyway, enough of that ramble. You can see how if you think you're doing something for someone, like you're showing love to them by doing an act of service, whether that's sweeping the floor, doing the dishes or whatever, and and you think that's going to show that you care for someone, uh, but what they really want is, you know, quality time, you can see how that can cause a little bit of an issue in your relationship that can kind of grow in a bad way over time. Uh, and just knowing that different people speak different love languages, uh, although it's a really simple concept, it's really good to know. So that's something that you can be aware of. But now we are going to continue on with our Girl Power episode. So the next clip we are going to play is coming from a, a church-based organization called Focus on the Family. And they interview a girl by the name of Shanti Feldhan. And she's written a couple of really good books. Uh, One is called For Men Only, and another one is called For Women Only. Uh, And actually, I think think her husband may have written one of those, or they wrote them together or something like that. But both very good, insightful books. But this particular podcast, she's being interviewed uh, to talk about her book where she did research on the happiest married couples and what gives these couples long-term happiness. And there's so many good things in this uh, clip I'm about to play for you. And this is one of those things where I mentioned to you guys the episode before. Actually, that was the main hack last episode. Like, whenever you hear a good idea, make a note of it, write it down, figure out how to incorporate that into your life. Uh, when you listen to this, I guarantee you there's going to be some things that uh, are could be an aha moment for you, and you really want to take note of those, uh, both figuratively and literally, if you really want to uh, apply those to your life. So let's take a listen to this clip and see if you guys can pick up on some stuff that really makes people happy together in the long term. And uh, I should note that this program is for relatively healthy marriages. You may just be a bit in a rut. Uh, and you want some help to get up out of there so you can thrive, not just survive. 
And uh, if you and your spouse are going through a really difficult season, uh, don't be disheartened uh, by the lightheartedness of this program. Find the little nuggets of wisdom and uh, apply them in your life. Then I think it'll bring you that hope for you and your spouse. And we are always here to talk with you if you need help. We are, and you can find specific uh, assistance for your situation at focusonthefamily.com slash radio, or call and ask to talk to uh, one of our counselors. Our number is 800, the letter A, and the word family program. You've written this new book. Uh, Some have called it one of the best books, if not the best book on marriage. That's a big endorsement. Uh, It's titled The Surprising Secrets of Highly Happy Marriages. Let me challenge you on the title right out of the gate. Is happy marriage really the goal? You know what? Here's, I think, the thing that we get into is it's so easy for us to say, well, our goal shouldn't be to be happy. It should be to, like Gary Thomas's book, to be holy, mm-hmm. right? And I once had a, um, a pastor that I really respected, and he's done tons of marriage therapy. He said the problem with that is that we get to the idea that they're mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. And he said he has couples come to him all the time who think that they have two choices, which is break up and be happy or stay together and be miserable. He's like, door number three, <laughs> yeah. stay together and be happy. Why and- don't we talk about that more often? Well, I think it's because in our culture, we've gotten into this idea of basically saying marriage is tough and it's hard we'll carry and, the burden. and we'll carry the burden. And, you know, yeah, absolutely. For some marriages, it is tough and, for and some it seasons. is hard and for some seasons. And that's never an excuse to give up. It's never an excuse to leave. But here's what I realized as I started doing this research is it is so easy to focus on our problems to try to fix them. Problem, fix it. Problem, fix it. You know, what's the issue here? What's getting in the way? And that means you're only focusing on the problems. Well, and, I want to say something before you yes, move on, because yeah. as a man, I'm relating to what you're saying right now, <laughs> because we're problem solvers. You're that yeah. analytical mind. I like what you're saying. Well, here's, Do most women resonate with that, though? They absolutely do. And you know why? Because one, one thing I always say when I realize this, I'm like, wait a minute. If I want to have a happy marriage, who do I look to? Like, if I want to be more like Jesus, do I study the Pharisees? I hope not. (laughs) Or do I study Jesus? Mm -hmm. No, I actually study the one who I'm looking to as the role model. Mm. And so let's look at what the happy marriages have to teach us and celebrate that and say it's possible. Well, that leads to a great next question, I think, John. What was your number one finding when you did the research for the book? Actually, I think the biggest thing that is the biggest prerequisite you can't have a happy marriage without it, is you have to believe the best of your spouse's intentions when you're hurt. Mm-hmm. What does that look like practically? Because there are times to be vulnerable. I don't always have that thought. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, most of us don't it, necessarily. It, it seems more natural and human to have not so good thoughts in that regard, that mm-hmm. you don't think the best of your spouse's intentions. <laughs> you know, why did she leave that in the walkway, toward the driveway, whatever? But she knew I'd trip over it and break my back Correct. again. Basically, right, that yeah. could be a thought. You're not falling at that moment thinking, I'm sure she intended this for my good. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Here, you know, here's the difference. It was fascinating. As I was talking to really happy couples. And, you know, we should explain that what I was doing was researching the happiest couples to try to find out what they're doing differently. So that was your pool of research. Yeah. What are these people doing differently than everybody else? And it was a thousand couples. Is that right? Yeah, it was. I did a huge research with a big nationally representative survey, which is, you know, one of the things I always try to do to, to nail it down. And I found that these really happy couples that when they were hurt 
And everybody gets hurt, right? I mean, just because you have a happy marriage doesn't mean it's perfect, right? When a normal average couple is hurt, the natural human tendency is to think to yourself, oh, he knew how that would make me feel and he said it anyway, so right? you process that maybe without even thinking without, that it's way. It's subconscious it often. Just... Great point. It's really subconscious. and But you don't realize that what you're kind of feeling is he doesn't care. Hmm. The happy couples, I noticed this completely different trend. They basically would say to themselves, ow, yeah, that hurt, but I know he cares about me. Huh. I know he loves me, so he must not have known how that would make me feel or he wouldn't have said it. It was a totally different way of looking at it. And I would think that that would be a predominant thought. I don't think um, happily or average couples uh, go out of their way to hurt. They may just speak without thinking. I mean, is that a cop-out, do you think? No, I th- you're right on. Actually, statistically, this was one of the things that I think reason it's a prerequisite is that in almost 100% of cases on my survey, even in the most struggling marriages, everybody really cares about their spouse. But if you want to be happy, you have to let yourself believe it. Do you mind if I give you an example? Sure. Because I was talking to this one young woman who's probably, I don't know, late 20s, married a few years. They were pregnant with their first child. And she had been planning this like big romantic, like the last dinner out before the baby comes kind of deal, right? And her husband worked late that night and they missed the reservation. And it was this big like deal that this restaurant they've been looking forward to forever. And she's like, I can't believe that he did this. And so I said, take me through what happened, you know, in your mind. And she said, well, I was so upset. Like, I can't believe he's working late again and he doesn't care. Wait a minute. No, I know he wanted this as much as I did. I knew he was looking forward to this. And so she approached him totally differently. Instead of, I can't believe you missed this. And this was our last chance before the baby came. And something that would have put him on the defensive and, you know, started a negative spiral. Mm -hmm. What Mm -hmm. happened was she said, what happened? I know you were looking forward to this too. And she heard him say, the client call came in right at the end of the day. His boss was standing right behind him. And he had heard there were going to be layoffs next week. And he's like, we have a baby coming. I can't afford to be, you know, looked at negatively by my boss. And so it, now we could say as women, well, I wish she would have approached it differently or whatever. Choose me over him. Yeah. But she, by the way she approached it, because she believed the best of his intentions towards her, it preserved their happiness and gave him a chance to explain and for her to see mm. he does care. That's an example of how different things go when you assume the person cares about you. Let me continue with the newlywed story because I think it's a good analogy. I'm sure most people get married with the best of intentions for each other and you think rightly of each other and the excitement is there. How does the rut begin to get dug that, you know, you end up having a thought that maybe their intention isn't so good for me? They're believing the worst of me. And then how do you get into that pattern 10 years down the road? I think it is basically the opposite of what we see in like Philippians 4, where Paul says, you've got to think on what is lovely and pure and excellent Mm. and honorable, right? And Mm. worthy of praise and not what's driving you crazy. That applies to a broad array of life. I think it's one of the great issues where we are so hypercritical Mm. on people. No, really? We don't (laughs) want to think highly of people. It's much more comfortable 
to be aggressive with people. And we don't realize how much we do that, even with a spouse. Uh, Shanti, I'm going to come back to this and press you a little more because I think it's it's it. part yeah. of the cultural problem that we have today. Uh, some people can take happiness to an unhealthy extreme. And basically, they say in their minds, if I'm not happy, uh, this marriage is a failure and I got to find a way out. Speak to the person that's not in that happy marriage right now. They're in that rut. How can I go home today and think differently about my spouse? Well, one of the most important things, honestly, does come out of that great passage in Philippians, right? Because, and this is actually one of the other secrets. There were 12 of these habits that identified of what these couples were doing differently, the happiest couples. And one of them was basically they learned how to talk themselves out of being upset huh. or being mad or having this weird, you know, icky feeling towards their spouse. So they choose a more positive they, perspective. They choose a more positive perspective, and it's biblical. It's not this, like, weird, you know, guru on a mountaintop in Nepal, just, you know, <laughs> think, think out in the cosmos somewhere in some weird New Age way. No, no, no. This is biblical. Paul is saying in Philippians 4, rejoice, right? Remember this? It's this command. Again, I'm going to say rejoice. And you think, okay, you know, you were in prison while you're saying this, Paul. You're chained to a wall. How do you rejoice in a prison or in a difficult marriage? And the answer comes in verse 8. Just a couple of verses later, he says, okay, here's how you do it. You think on the best instead of the worst. Mm -hmm. You think on the things that you can appreciate about your spouse rather than what legitimately is really an issue. For example, one of the things that I saw in these happy couples, which just blew me away, is these really happy couples, they had issues just like anybody else. I mean, there was a husband who was struggling with pornography or there was a, a wife who was dealing with you know special needs kids all day at home or there were all of these issues. And yet they were so enjoying their marriage. And okay, what is it? And I was noticing that what the thing was, one of the things that made this big difference is when they legitimately had an issue, like I wish this wasn't an issue. And we're working on this real problem with my husband say, but you know what? He's a great dad. He always, he's so tired after work and he takes the kids out and plays ball with them. And what a huge way he's pouring into his children. So she's choosing to focus on what is lovely rather than what is legitimately an issue. It doesn't mean you ignore the problems, but it does mean that you can completely change how you feel about your whole marriage. Well, I like that emphasis because one, it's rooted biblically and two, it reflects the heart of God. You know what we're challenged with, I think, in our culture today, not just in our marriages, but our culture at large, is we're getting more and more, and I think too comfortable attacking each other Mm -hmm. rather than trying to think the best of people while you work out your differences. And we're forgetting the principles are what are key, not some of the tactics. You know, what's really fun is um, one of the other habits, you know, and this is a little one. I almost missed it. I didn't realize what a big deal it was until I started looking into the numbers. Talking about that kind of polarization and attacking and how you speak to each other. We've gotten into this weird habit when we're in a marriage, we kind of let it all hang out. You know how you sometimes see somebody speaking to a husband or a wife in a tone that you know, like, I can't believe you forgot the dry cleaning. And I think, and I think ever, to myself, nope, nope. You never heard anybody say that? Well, and, and I'm not talking about you, oh, gentlemen. Of course not. I have I'm a talking friend. about, I'm talking a about, mutual friend. <laughs> I'm talking about the John. people. 
Yeah, you're talking about those I, people. I'm talking about the people that you sometimes hear, like, standing in line at a restaurant or something. Yes. And you think – you hear this stranger saying this, and you think, would you ever say that – use that tone of voice with your best girlfriend? Like, if you're talking to your husband mm. like that, why would mm. you ever use that tone of voice with your husband? And that was another big difference. These happy couples, one of the reasons they're happy is they had a high level of just kindness. But I noticed these same five things. It was saying thank you. It was saying thank you, and he did a great job in front of other people. It was some of that showing you desire him in the bedroom, you know, some of those things. And on the women's side, the husbands tended to, without knowing it, they would sit at church and put their arm around her in church. And they would walk across the parking lot and just, you know, reach out and hold her hand. Mm. And the men were just doing it without realizing that to a woman, that was this like, oh, it feels so good. It says, it's like he's saying, you're mine. And it says these special things to a woman. And so even though these are little bitty things that the opposite sex doesn't realize are important, they have this huge meaning. And so that's one of the reasons these couples were happy, because day in, day out, they were sending this message, I care about you. And five minutes later, I care about you still. And five minutes later, I still <laughs> care about you. And it builds like a bubble or a cocoon that protects the relationship well, from some other shocks. In some ways, it sounds, Gary Chapman, of course, has been a guest on this broadcast talking about the love languages. And in some ways, you're correlating some of this, I think, because a person whose love language is touch. Now, you're saying these are more universal truths. That was what surprised me. It was like 97% of the men said that when she said thank you day in and day out, it had a big impact, Hmm. whether or not his language is words of affirmation. Uh, Shanti, there is someone who's thinking, I, I am really glad to hear what you're saying, but it seems like our roles are reversed in our marriage. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's actually the man saying, I wish she would cozy up to me in church, or the woman saying, I could care less if he changes the light bulb. I mean, it just doesn't mean a yeah. thing to me. So address that gender stereotype that you've raised, which obviously is true across the board most of the time, but yeah. there are there are some differences oh, yeah. uh, in personalities and style. Oh, sure. There's always exceptions. I mean, when I was writing the books about understanding men and understanding women, that's one of the reasons I did the survey. So I would know what I could make generalizations about. Mm. And, you know, I always say if if 75% of men said this way, that means 25% didn't, right? And so there are those exceptions. And that's just the way God has wired you. Great. But that's one of the reasons I spend a lot of time also talking to the majority is because these really are the little things that you don't know matters mm. so much to that other person because you are wired so differently. Mm. Hey, there's another one that caught my attention, which uh, is counterintuitive because we're told to not let the sun go down on your anger. So, I mean, you in pre-marriage counseling, you get that all the time. Mm. Resolve your conflict before you hit the bedroom. And yep. we've been pounded with that. And yet in your book, you found one of the things that married, happily married couples do is they go to bed mad. What is that? What do you I mean go to bed mad? I knew you were going to raise this one. Yeah, that's so counterintuitive. Here's really the funny part about this is that we've all heard that phrase, you know, don't let the sun go down in your anger. And when I started talking to these couples, the happy couples, I would one of the things I most wanted to do was to find out what do they actually do as opposed to what they advised others to do and advised to do. And so I would always hear them say this. That would be one of their pieces of advice for me. You know, well, it's really important to not go to bed mad. And I would say, oh, yeah. So um, do you? 
<laughs> ever go to bed mad? Well, it's a really important principle, you know, and they kind of backpedal, backpedal. And when I'd say, no, I just, I want to know, do you ever? And almost always the answer was, well, yes, yeah, sometimes. And so I started digging into that. What is up with this? Mm. And this is the way they put it. In real life, one of the things they found, which we've all seen, is that nothing good is going to happen when you get to a certain hour at night and you feel this pressure to try to resolve something because I have to resolve it before bed. And you've got two tired, cranky, exhausted, emotional people trying to duke something out at midnight. And they said, you're going to hurt each other. You're going to say things you don't mean. You're going to agree to things you wish you'd never agreed to and you get resentful. And so they said sometimes they would get to the point where they would say, you know what? Nothing's good is going to happen from us doing this. Let's say we're going to sleep on it. We'll come back to it in the morning. We're okay. I love you. We need to do this in the morning. And then the next morning, half the time, they were like, what was that about? You know, because you get a good night's sleep. It looks different. So that was the first thing that I heard. But then I started getting nervous because it doesn't matter if the happy couples do it, if it's anti-biblical, right? That was my big concern Mm -hmm. as a believer. How could you explain it? Yeah. And so I'm like, uh, and so I took another look at that scripture in Ephesians four that says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. So it turns out that the whole scripture is basically saying in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. We've interpreted that as quote, don't go to bed mad, which is not actually what it says. Okay. So it turns out Paul in that passage, he's quoting a verse from the Psalms, Psalms four, four which says basically, in your anger, don't sin. Think about it overnight and remain silent. (laughs) It's almost the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. (laughs) And I had a counselor who was just a very wise person. And he said, look, here's what it is. The key there is don't sin in your anger. If you need to work it out before you go to bed to not sin in your anger, do it. If you need to say, look, we'll be able to work this out in the morning, not holding it over your partner's head, obviously, but we'll be able to work this out in the morning and work it out the next day in order to not sin in your anger, do that. I'm just impressed that they're up at midnight disagreeing. I mean, that's pretty incredible. I mean, I can't get past 10 o'clock. So I admire the fact that they could stay up that late. Well, one of the interesting things, actually, about the people who decided to go to bed on it, which is the majority of people regardless, is what they did the next day, it turns out, was the biggie. The happy couples handled it totally different from Mm. everybody else. If it was still an issue the next day, if the hurt feelings were still there, they dealt with it. The less than happy couples were much more likely to just kind of let it float away and hope it went away on its own and not deal with it. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that eventually will pull a couple apart. And so that's the difference often is what you do the next day. Let me tease that out a little bit. So you go to bed, uh, you think you've resolved this conflict, and yet you haven't. As from your perspective, you think uh, you've resolved it? Uh, like maybe, the guy is like, Whoo, let me, done let me with say that. it this way: maybe your spouse <laughs> thinks you've resolved it, but you don't feel that it's been resolved yet. How, how does a happy couple continue to solve a problem when only one of you thinks it's resolved? Okay, mm-hmm. that's actually I've seen that as an example several times, and I hate to say it, it's usually the woman. You know, who is she's got we call that an open window, like on your computer, it keeps popping up right, right on the screen of your mind as a woman. Like, but what about this? And what so about the man's that? moved on. The he man's thinks moved it's done. On. We're all yeah. happy. Right. Yeah. But and, no, <laughs> but no, maybe not. Actually, it's really interesting that gets into how you approach each other when you have a difference of opinion. And that's where that kindness 
comes mm. back in. And the happy couples, if she still had an issue, she wouldn't be like, I can't believe you're ignoring this. Instead, it was, listen, I know you care about this as much as I do. I'm still having a problem with this. Mm. And because she's approaching it kindly Mm -hmm. and in a way that affirms him, like, I know you care about me and believing the best. Because she's approaching it that way, he's a lot less likely to get defensive. Uh, Shanti, we have so much more to cover. In fact, you talk about, <laughs> this is one of those counterintuitive things, that it's good to keep score. <laughs> and I, yeah. I don't, I'm not sure how to understand that, but I want to keep going. And uh, will you be able to help us better understand what is a healthy way to keep score in a marriage? Absolutely. Let's and everybody's like, what on earth? Yes, absolutely. Let's come back and do that. Shanti, it was so good to talk with you last time, but you kind of twisted my mind a bit at the end. (laughs) Yeah. Let me give you an example. A happy couple I was interviewing, I was asking them, and I do this with everybody, take me through your last conflict, the last time that somebody hurt your feelings and that there was a potential for it going downhill. And I was talking to this one guy who he was getting ready for a really important business trip and had asked his wife many times, are you going to pick up my shirts at the dry cleaners? I'm leaving really early in the morning. I can do it. No, no, honey. No, I got it. I'll get them. Okay, you sure? Because I can go by. No, no, sweetheart. I'll go get them. So he arrives home at nine o'clock at night. The dry cleaners are closed and the shirts aren't there. Mm. And he has to leave at (laughs) six in the morning. And now he isn't, you know, what am I going to do? This big business meeting. Jean, I did not talk to her about that. (laughs) (laughs) Really? This was not a real example. And so I say, okay, what happens next? Because this is where it can all go downhill. I can't believe you, blah, 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 blah. And and so I said, take me, what happens next? Well, I'm pounding the cabinet, you know, (laughs) putting the cabinets together that I've been making. And okay, what are you thinking? I'm thinking I asked her three times and I was willing to do it. And and she said she would. And, but you know, that's not really fair because pound, 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 because, you know, the baby was sick all day and she's been home with these cranky kids who've been sick and she had to take the baby to the doctor. And then the I know the line at the, to get the prescription was took a long time and she had to go to the grocery store to get dinner. And, and, you know, and she always feeds the family and she's always cooks me dinner and she's such a great mom. And why am I being such a jerk? Hmm. You know, and what's just happened there is that he has refused to allow that little voice of the enemy. She doesn't appreciate you. You, you work so hard and she doesn't care. He's refused to allow that. And instead, he's talking himself out of being mad mm. by focusing on what is good, not what's bad, and what's lovely instead of what's maybe not so perfect right now, and what he can appreciate instead of what's driving him crazy legitimately. And that is an example of the kind of things that we can learn from the happy couples because what they have found really is the secret sauce to a happy marriage. Okay, now I've got to hit another trait that you identified, though, because it seems, again, counterintuitive where you talk about this idea that keeping score is a good thing to do. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring It sounds that totally <laughs> opposite, but what did you find in that regard? Keeping score is good? Yeah, we are always told not to keep score, not to keep score. And instead, these happy couples absolutely did keep score, believe I mean, it or like not. I mean, like in a gentle they, way? Yeah. But they kept score totally differently. Oh, okay. They kept score of what the other person was giving. And so it was really interesting watching the difference instead of, where, of course, it's terrible to keep score of what they're not giving. And the of wrongs. course, it's going to be awful to keep score of the wrongs and what they're getting and I'm not getting. You know, I mean, that's going to always derail your Describe what, what the healthy way of keeping score so looks like. An example. All right. So the same husband that I was just talking about, he was describing how... Um, 
with his wife, she had gone through a season where their kids were actually sick for a whole week and in and out of the doctors and cranky kids, and she's a stay-at-home mom. And so he's automatically, he's going, wow, I'm really aware of the fact that she's had this really hard week and she's been with these sick kids and, oh my goodness, she's giving so much to them and she's got to be so tired. So, you know, come Saturday when I'm home from work, honey, why don't you just... Give me the kids. I'll take the cranky kids and the sick, you know, and wiping their noses and all that. And you go out with your girlfriends and you just get out for the day because he is so aware of what she's been giving that there's this gratitude. And so there's this outpouring of what can I do to give back? And it's not like, you know, I'm just going to be such a wonderful husband and I'm going to allow her to go out because I'm just that nice of a man. And instead, it's like, no, I am seriously grateful because I notice what she's giving. And so I want to give back. And then that day, she goes out with her girlfriends and she's like, wow, that was so sweet of him. He's such a nice guy. What can I do to give back and to him? And all her girlfriends are saying and that too. And all her girlfriends are saying <laughs> that too. And what can I do to give back to him? Because she's grateful. And this is all part of that grace and that generosity. This is all part of that awareness and kindness of the other person. This is actually, to me, one of the reasons why, you know, Jim, you talked about you needed to rely on God for this kind of awareness of what the other person is giving and really, truly how to look at the positive instead of the negative. I mean, because that doesn't come naturally. One of the other things that I found in the research, there was a very high number of these highly happy couples that said, I can't do it on my own, that I have Mm -hmm. to rely on God. I mean, I was, as a researcher, I was pretty careful to try to go beyond the bounds of the church and interview people in coffee shops and airports. And, you know, I always feel bad for the person sitting next to me on the airplane for two hours. You know, it's like, <laughs> you're that person. <laughs> like, oh, no. <laughs> I get great data, though. But but here's what really stunned me. I was on purpose trying to find people who might not believe in God. Uh-huh. But they kept bringing him up. It was funny. Like, I'd talk to them and say, you know, and they would, if they had shown that they were the highly happy couple, you know, I'd say, okay, so help me understand. What are some of the secrets? You know, why are you so happy? And they would often look at each other and then look at me and say, it's because of Jesus Christ. And I could tell they were saying, ooh, it's a chance to witness to a social researcher, (laughs) you know, and which was so encouraging to me. Let me ask you this, though, and that is encouraging, but to those who didn't um, point to a relationship with Christ. Which did happen, of course. Did you find the biblical principles still in play? Yes, Mm -hmm. very much so. that's what I would think would be And that absolutely was, I mean, and every now and then I'd jot down a note on my, you know, little notebook and I'd say, huh, you know, it's actually one, because they'd be talking about being kind, for example, speaking kindly to one another. And I'm like, yeah, like, you know, the Bible says, be kind to one another. You know, I'd I'd try to like get it across. You know, you're living by biblical principles. You're not realizing it. (laughs) No, and that to me is encouraging. That should be self-evident then Mm -hmm. when you're witnessing to somebody to be able to bring these things up. Well, here's one of the things that was really, as I started looking into the numbers, we have this... um, this belief that really isn't true in our culture, that most couples are just kind of hanging on and that they're really not enjoying their marriages. And right. We the, have bought into that. We've kind of bought into Even that. Christians. Belief. And it's not true at all. And, you know, all the studies that have been done have found that 80 percent of marriages 
on average, 80% of marriages are happy. And it's not perfect, certainly, but enjoying being married, generally. 80%. 80%. Folks hear that? 80%. Hmm. And the thing, one of the things that to me is even more encouraging is when I started studying what the numbers really are in the church, because we've kind of bought into this idea that, that 50%. You know, 50, yeah, 50% divorce rate and it's the same in the church. And none of that is, and that is so not true. It's based on some big misunderstandings of the Barna data. And that in the church, instead, what percentage of these couples who say that they're looking to God as the center of their marriage, what percentage aren't just happy? What percent are very happy? Mm -hmm. Where both the husband and the wife are just loving this gift that God has given them. 53% of mm. people who say that God is at the center of their marriage are not just happy, they're very happy. Well, what about the couple? And again, we're talking hypotheticals here to help everyone because we're yeah. all going to be at different places in yeah. our relationships together. But uh, what about the couple where, uh, you know, the husband, it's what they both refer to as a vicious cycle. They're both not thinking the best of each other, yeah. perhaps. And um, the husband will say that, you know, you always think the worst motivation for me. And the wife says, well, you've given me plenty of ammunition. Ouch. Ouch. These are all <laughs> yes. ouches. And she's thinking, well, you've wounded me so many times. I'm responding to you. I'm simply reflecting the way right. you're treating me. Mm-hmm. And the husband's mm-hmm. saying, well, I'm reflecting the way you're treating me. Total vicious cycle. What happens there? What are you trying to do? And how does a, a couple pull themselves up out of that and get happier. Yeah, well, here's one of the other interesting things that I found. And actually, probably for me personally, this was one of the most encouraging things that I saw in this entire project over the last three years, is that many of the happy couples that I surveyed and interviewed had been there, had been at that unhappy place. So they went through that valley. They Mm -hmm. went through that valley. And now I'm surveying them, you know, some number of years later, and they describe themselves as being incredibly happy in their marriage. And and I should explain, by the way, that the way I identified that is if the husband and the wife independently, without ever knowing what the other person said about their level of happiness, if they both chose that they were at the highest level of the scale of happiness, those are the couples I was talking to. Mm. So this isn't like the husband saying, yeah, we're great. And the wife's like, eh. You know, this is independently both agreeing. And so many of those people had gone through the valley. What did they do differently? And one of the biggies is that one person decided to stop the cycle. Mm. Just one. It wasn't necessarily both. And that's this wonderful paradox about serving the other person and just doing what you're called to do, regardless of whether your spouse does their part. And that is honestly one of the things that allows that cycle to be broken. For example, maybe you speak to me in a really rough tone. I am not going to respond in kind. La, 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 not you, listening, right? I'm just, I, And I am going to, and instead of responding the way I naturally want to, I'm going to force myself to take a deep breath, and I'm going to speak to you kindly regardless. Mm. And at some point, when you give that grace, it brings conviction. And instead, you know, like that other person starts to want to treat you kindly because you're mm-hmm. treating them so kindly. You know that scripture about, you know, treat them kindly. It keeps burning coals on their head, you know, because <laughs> you start to feel terrible that you're being such a grouch, right? That's an example of one person making a choice can make a big difference. And can break that cycle. Can break the cycle. What about the spouse? That, and again, I think I know the answer to this, but I want to ask it. <laughs> what about that spouse who's saying, hey, you know what? I'm looking for the good in my spouse, but 
I ain't seeing much. Mm. How do you keep yourself motivated in that regard? It's really a godly thing to be able to do that. It's not natural for us in our human weakness to make that decision. We need God to help us. We do, because it's very unnatural. But, you know, honestly, there is always something that God has put in that person to be the person that you need them to be. There's always going to be that there. I know, I'm sure that there are going to be a few exceptions. You are married to an axe murderer. Okay, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe they're beyond help. I don't know. But in most cases, you truly are married to someone who cares about you. You need to look for the proof of that, not look for the proof of the opposite. And that's the problem. It is so easy to get into that phase of, well, I'm looking, but I'm not seeing anything. Well, then you know what? I'm sorry. You're not looking hard enough. Uh, Let's get back to your book, The Surprising Secrets of Highly Happy Marriages. Uh, In there, you talk, these are the little goodies that you found in your research. (laughs) I like to think of them that way. But you said happy couples boss their feelings around. Again, that's a a grabber, but what does it really mean? (laughs) This is that thing where they talk themselves out of being mad. Right. Or when they're when their thoughts start to go in a negative direction, they're like, nope, not going to go there. I'm going to do that Philippians four thing instead. And I really want to focus on what is not lovely, but I'm going to focus on what is lovely. And I want to focus on right now. I'm really frustrated and I want to focus on what is not worthy of praise, but I'm going to focus on what is worthy of praise. It was actually really interesting. And they got so used to that, or it became such a habit over time, yeah, Yeah. that in the end, I think it was something like two-thirds of these really happy couples, that had become so much a part of their life that when I asked, you know, what do you do with a negative train of thought? Instead of saying, okay, well, here's how I combat it, and here's how I do that, two-thirds of them said, you know, I've gotten so used to doing this, I stopped that negative train of thought before it even gets started. Before the whistle blows. Yeah, about my spouse. <laughs> and so that's one of the reasons that they are so enjoying ma- being married because they are constantly in a state of awareness of all of the good things, even when, yeah, we're dealing with issues like anybody else. Shanti, let me ask you this question. It's a little tender, okay. uh, but I think we need to ask it. Uh, for that person who feels they're having to tell their spouse what they want or need, it kind of for them takes all the romance out of it. And, uh, you know, they would prefer that the spouse knows what they want or need. Is that fair? Or is that maybe unfair that they would have that expectation? It's unfortunately very unfair. Um, This is one of the things that uh, I... As I identified these 12 things, I kept coming up with this one and going, oh, man, I have a tendency to do this. I think we all do. We, we've all been there, right? And truly, you know, psychologists will tell you, this is something obviously Greg Smalley can tell you way better than I can. But, you know, psychologists and counselors will tell you that the thing that makes someone unhappy is having an expectation that isn't met. You know, you're expecting something to happen a particular way, and it doesn't, and that's what makes you unhappy. And as I dug into these, you know, what are these happy couples doing differently from everybody else is they stopped themselves from, I guess you'd put it kind of longing for or expecting something that was really difficult for their spouse to deliver. I mean, for example, a common thing that I think we women really long for, you know, if if things are a conflict and, and there's a lot of emotions in the room and we're all upset and we're not feeling like he loves me. And you, as a woman, sometimes 
kind of want to test whether he really cares about you by sort of pulling away. Well, fine. I'll just go do something else then. And you secretly want him to come after you and say, <laughs> no, I'm not letting you get away because I love you that much, you know, until we work this out. Well, actually, that's an expectation from the romance novels. It's <laughs> not real life. And real life men need time and distance to process when there's been a lot of emotions in the room. And so when you say, you know, fine, I'll just go do something else for a while. He's going, oh, good. I get, <laughs> you know, I get a break. Too, because I need to be able to go and think what I'm what am I feeling and how can we talk about this so and so we can engage well later. And and so it's really not realistic to expect a most real life men to do what the romance heroes do. No, I'm not going to let you get away because I love you that much. And instead, if you let yourself think if he cared about me, he wouldn't let me get away. That's an example of something that's just going to make you crazy and unhappy because you are expecting and longing something for something that is very difficult for him to deliver. It, when you boil it down then um, for that couple that's surviving, yeah, they've heard us talk about these couples uh, today and last time that are in a happy state. They're fulfilled. They're enjoying each other. Both wives and husbands hearing this are longing for that. Um, maybe they don't have it. Yeah. What can they do when they get home tonight, when work is done and they're sitting at the dinner table or maybe after dinner, whatever? What can they do to say, okay, we're going to change this? One of the most big picture encouraging things is to sit down and say, you know what, we're not where we really want to be. We both want to have a great, happy marriage. And you know what? If 80% of these couples can be that happy, we can get there too. And so a couple can come home tonight and say, you know what? Let's just try a couple of these things. Just pick. And this is my big <laughs> encouragement for them. Don't try to pick all of them at once because you'll just like get overwhelmed. Just we, one or two. Just one or two. That's to us the key. Pick one or maybe pick one for you and one for your spouse to do. Pick one or two things that you're going to try for a few weeks and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Choose to believe, for example, that the next time you're hurt, that he didn't mean that. And mm -hmm. he didn't mean it the way it came across. Choose to believe the best. Choose to look for the good instead of the bad and the things you can appreciate rather than what drives you absolutely bananas. And refuse to focus on the negative for a few weeks. And wow, you might find your feelings changing. And then you know what? It'll be a whole lot easier for you suddenly to then work on the next thing and the next thing because now you're suddenly starting to enjoy each and other And then again. you develop patterns of good behavior that really will help your marriage thrive, not just survive. So many good things in that clip. For example, the concept, choose to believe the best in your spouse. I mean, that is such a big concept. And did you pick up on the part where they were talking about the happy married couples that at one point in their marriage, they were like really bad and almost miserable. Uh, but yet current day, they both individually rated their marriage as highly satisfied or very happy or whatever, whatever that highest rating was. So they were in the valley at one point and now they're at the, the peak. And when they figured out why that was, it was basically because one person decided to, quote unquote, stop the cycle. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like baking an argument cake that we talked about two episodes ago? I mean, if everyone's putting in the ingredients, 
you're going to bake that cake. But if just one person stops, you can't bake that cake, right? The same thing is going on when you have these couples that at one point in their marriage, they were in the valley, but now they're at the mountaintop. And to me, that's very encouraging. And that choose to believe the best in your spouse is such a big deal. And I can tell you a quick story of a very similar circumstance uh, that you heard in the podcast that just happened to me uh, probably a few months ago. I have two kids and my daughter was having a sleepover at a friend's house. And I figured to myself, if I could find somewhere for my son to sleep over, I could score a date night with my wife. I thought that that was a pretty good husband thing to do. So I made a bunch of phone calls to parents of my son's friends, and alas, everyone's busy. And the only one I could find that that was available was one of his friends he used to go to school with. The hitch was that this friend lived three hours away. But I'm thinking to myself, you know what, that that's worth it. I'm, I'm going to do, do some driving, do some planning, and I think it'll be worth it if I get a quiet evening uh, that I could spend with my wife. So I arrange everything, I get up on a Saturday morning, uh, drive my son three hours north, drop him off, and drive three hours back. And the whole time I'm planning, you know, on the way back I'm making reservations for either, uh, for dinner and then either a comedy club or a movie or something like that. And I've got this whole thing planned out and, you know, I'm kind of thinking to myself, oh, she's going to be so happy, I've, I've put in all this effort, you know, I'm, I'm building up these expectations uh, you know, sort of what they just talked about in that clip. And as I'm driving home, you know, I text my wife, I, I give her the reservation times and when she needs to be ready and all that good stuff. And lo and behold, uh, long story short is I get home and she's not even close to ready. I mean, I know approximately how long it takes my wife to get ready and we're well in that window and she hasn't started to get ready. And I, I started to get mad and I've got all these kind of crazy conversations going on in my in my head you know this kind of road rage conversations we talked about before where (laughs) when you're not talking to someone it's real easy to talk kind of crazy and and build this uh, drama up in your head you know so I'm thinking to myself man I, I went out of my way and she doesn't care about this and you know, tomorrow I'm going to have to go pick up my son. So that's another six hours. So I drove, I drove 12 hours and I'm doing this all for my wife and she can't get ready and and she doesn't care about this and she's taking me for granted. And, you know, I'm building all of this stuff up. But then I thought, you know, I had already listened to this podcast, you know, so I I had known about this, this concept, believe uh, the best in your spouse. And to me, I actually call it uh, talking yourself off the rooftop, right? You're going crazy, you're mad, you're upset, and you just sort of have to talk yourself down. Uh, Because my wife, honestly, has no idea that I was upset at the time. And so I slowly start to talk myself off the roof. And I go, wait, you know, okay, I'm right, she's wrong, maybe she's taking me for granted, but what good is it going to do if... I'm mad. Then I'll for sure, I'm driving all that way and I'm going to ruin the evening. I'm at least not going to ruin the evening. If we're late, that's fine. It is what it is. We'll we'll try and enjoy the evening. So I start to calm down. And then I start to think, well, you know, she was working on something. She was doing some sort of work. She worked really busy. What, you know, what was she, what was she working on? And then I started to think and some conversations came back and I'm like, man, she said she had to get something done in time because for her business, she had to deliver something and 
she had to drop something off to her mother and her mother lives far away, but the mom was going to be really close to our house the next day. And if she didn't get it done now, so I started basically putting all these pieces together and I'm like, oh, she's, she's really doing this, I think, so she can get this off of her checklist so she can spend time and enjoy the evening with me. And she's probably not worried about being a few minutes late to the dinner reservation. So I I played all this out in my head. And, And keep in mind, I hadn't had a single conversation with my wife. At this point, it's just me talking to myself. You know, I was got really mad and then really not mad. And by the time we left, we ended up maybe five minutes late for the whole evening. So it worked out fine. Uh, and I was getting pretty much worked up over nothing. So I just kind of bring it up. I'm I'm like, hey, you know, uh, you were kind of busy near the near the end. You know, I, I thought we were going to be uh, kind of late to our reservation. She's like, oh, yeah, no, I apologize for that. But, you know, I had this thing to do and, and I had to get it done. And if I didn't get it done now, that, then I would mean tomorrow I'd have to, to drive an hour and that would waste time. And I'm trying to trying to be productive and I'm trying to listen to what you said on your podcast and be productive and manage my time well. And aren't you proud of me? I've I've done some of the things that you've suggested. So here, here I am, like was totally furious at her in my head an hour earlier, but now I'm totally calm and I realize that not only was she not taking me for granted, she was doing things to make me proud and show me that she listens to what I say and she cares about what I say and she tries to actually use some of the little tricks and techniques uh, in her life, which to me is a huge compliment. But just think about how that could have played out. If, if I went up to her and said, you're going to be late for dinner. You always take me for granted. And you start throwing some of those always and never, you know, those gunpowder statements. And, and then all of a sudden you're, you're just in the middle of a big fight. I guess the point being is what they, they just mentioned in that podcast, man. I've experienced it a couple times. That was just one quick story. But if you can believe that your partner has your best intentions in mind and just act that way, things will get a whole lot better and a whole lot easier for you. But now, as promised, we're going to play the final clip of the episode, and it is an interview with uh, a female bodybuilder. Actually, it's probably more apt to call her a performance athlete. And I came across this interview because I had I'd recently gotten into the sport of CrossFit. So my basic theory is if you want to learn anything about anything new in your life, you just listen to audiobooks or podcasts. So I was pretty interested in CrossFit and someone recommended a podcast to me called Barbell Shrugged. So I look it up and I'm looking through the episode and it said something about Christmas. And I'm like, oh, you know, it was the, the end of the year. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is probably some like the best of episode. I was like, that'll be a good good one to listen to maybe they have some highlights from the the past year or something like that and it turns out it was actually an interview with a girl named Christmas her name is Christmas Abbott and it was just an extremely fascinating interview and this girl's got a, a really interesting story uh, she was basically lived a really really hard life was into drinking and doing drugs and doing nothing like physically active in any way, shape, or form. And then something clicked when she was 24 and she started to get into CrossFit. And in about, I want to say, I think they said 10 years, she went from pretty much nothing to 
high level elite performance athlete writing books giving nutrition tips uh, competing in national crossfit events and just doing a bunch of stuff that people only dream of i th- i think she's even involved in like a nascar pit crew uh <laughs> anyway very unique individual and she's got a lot of interesting things to say And this interview has mostly to do with fitness and training, but it's really easy to see how these lessons can be applied to life. And there's one lesson in particular that I'm going to tie back in and just how simple it is and how important it is. So we're going to play this clip. You'll actually notice a lot of concepts uh, that we've talked about on level one and level two of Hackstack, you know, just goal setting and getting out of your comfort zone. But uh, it's a pretty cool interview, a little inspirational and some really interesting stuff. And this will be a good clip to close out our girl power episode as we listen to Christmas Abbott talk about her five habits of success. It's now like, I have awesome habits. I didn't have awesome habits before. Well, you had to learn. I mean, no one's born with awesome habits. <laughs> By the way, habits. don't go drinking well, and doing drugs. Well, that, <laughs> it doesn't genius. make you awesome. Well, this goes, this goes back to awesome. the whole 10-year thing. Is you, didn't like, you didn't wake up 10 years ago and go, oh, these are the five habits I need to start yeah. right now. You just, it's like these are habits that you refined over this 10-year period. I didn't even know I was implementing these. And it's funny to look back. Right. Even, even when I started to make those major changes, I was implementing all of these. The first habit is set big goals, then break them down. I think that a lot of people forget that they have to have smaller goals to get to that larger goal. They're like, oh, I just want to do 10 million things. And yeah. and they don't know how to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. And if you work backwards, it helps you connect the dots a lot easier. How, mm-hmm. how, does, how can you apply this to training? To training? Oh, yeah. man, I love it. So, you, you you know, what's your what's your big fat goal, right, is they're like, I want to go compete at regionals. Maybe that's their big fat goal. Cool. The, I find that people don't want to do a competition until they're ready. There's oh, no yeah. time you're ever going to be ready. Mm-hmm. The first time you're ready is after you – if you're ever ready, then I'm not sure what competition you're doing, especially with uh, weightlifting as well. Mm-hmm. They say I, – I tell people, I'm like – whether you're ready or not, you need to go have the experience because you may have the physical ability to it, but the mental capacity is very different. Mm. And, you know, oh, yeah. it takes a lot out of you emotionally and mentally during a competition. You don't know how your body's going to respond. It's different than training in the gym. You grow out so of that. You do. Rapidly. And it's yeah. experience. It's, yeah. like it's, it's a completely different animal. I love the fact you said how you get shaking <clears throat> hands up there and how I think people need to embrace the situations that cause them to be scared and uncomfortable. Yeah. And, like, if you feel yourself being put in an awkward position, you feel yourself having to rise up to tackle something like that. You're probably in a good space. Push forward. Something good will come out of this. Yeah. And I mean, it's the whole, you know, fight or flight concept. And fighting in this situation is just keep going forward. Mm-hmm. You have to fight to not retreat. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's, that's, how that's you progress. been a lot of my life. If you do that in competition, <laughs> you're going to be able to do that in other aspects of your life. Because there's not many things scarier than competition from what yeah. I've experienced. Yeah. Because you think that everybody's looking at you and you're messing up and, you know, it's it's nobody really is looking at nobody you cares. for the most part. Um, <laughs> no, that's a and le- if you mess up, nobody cares either. All us primates feel the same. We get put in <laughs> uncomfortable situations. Like Christmas feels fear. She feels worried that, can I really pull off the book? Do, are people really going to pay to hear what I have to say about nutrition? It's a common element between us, isn't it? We already actually went right through point number two. That's right. We just flowed. That's right how natural into, it that's, is. 
That's how good you are at writing. It's like this is a natural <laughs> progression of, of thought stream. So point number two was always try new things. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of rolled right into that. I love it. Yeah, so we'll, we'll skip right over to point number three was do good without expectation. Oh, well, I want to go back to point number two just for one second. Sure. When I say try new things, I'm going – and I've said this many, many times before. The things that I have loved the most have been the things that I absolutely did not want to try. They were terrifying. I, I was angry angry <laughs> about having to try you know the polar bear plunge uh changing tires you know i was terrified about weightlifting i was terrified about trying cross it but it intrigued me enough to want to try it mm-hmm. um one of my favorite pastimes is snowshoeing i was what here yeah i don't know it's weird know that. um i didn't know you better Christmas. by the way we need to go snowshoeing. it's so fun i love it you know go to the top have a little fire little lunch Check back down. You've got me convinced. See, I was angry. I don't like my, cold. I'm not convinced. Still doesn't sound cool. Did, she see, had me at lunch. It didn't sound cool, but and I'm I'm like going up to the top of the mountain, ang- you know, just angry about it. And I'm like, this is gonna be the worst day of my life. As soon as we started going, you know, like within two minutes of snowshoeing, once mm. we got on the snow, I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> and I was angry at myself for not giving myself an opportunity to try something new and ultimately amaze myself. And now I have this favorite pastime. And uh, so ultimately, just try new things. Even if you don't want to, even if he has no interest whatsoever, you'll be surprised at what you're interested in. I used to follow this little Vintabak. this little mantra of, of uh, do it anyway. I, w- I was at a nutrition seminar like 15 years ago, like one of the first uh, nutrition seminars I ever, ever went to. And, and this woman was, was saying that, uh, when she was brought up, her her father had this this little thing that he would say to her all the time, no matter what it was, was just do it anyway. Yeah. And it's as as stupid as that sounds, and as as basic and easy as that sounds, it 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 actually did really really well for me. I was like, well, there's no no reason to do this thing. There's no reason to go <coughs> snowshoeing. There's no reason to try a CrossFit competition or whatever. But just do it anyway. Just try something new, just to try something new with no expectation. And it doesn't right? have to be anything huge. You know, it could mm. be trying the a hot yoga class versus flow or a, a flow and restore class. It doesn't have to be anything major. It can be something much, much smaller, but you're still expanding your toolbox. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do it just because you've never done it. Yeah. That's why you should do it. That's the reason. Boom. If you've never done it before. Doug delivered. I like that. <laughs> you know what that <laughs> does? If you start yeah. doing that, you get, a, you, you get this sense of like, there's other things I think I could do that used to seem crazy. And now I think maybe I could do them. Still scary. Still overwhelmingly scary. Mm-hmm. But what if I just do that anyway? And pretty soon you're like, you just get this habit of like, what's the next thing I could do that's awesome? What, what about that? And you're kind of jumping and like le- leapfrogging yeah. up. And before you know it, you're writing a book and you're you're on a podcast with the most handsome like- man you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to point out some people, are, some people are more apt to try new things constantly and other people aren't. And so, like, if you're one of those people who are like, never want to try something new. Recruit a buddy. Do, doing exactly Pair what, up with someone. Is that what you're about to say? No, I wasn't going to oh. say that, but go ahead. I, I, oh, that's, 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 that's how, how I've done a whole lot of really fun things in my life. Is I pair up with a bunch of people who are super proactive, like Mike and Chris and Chris, and they kind of just pull me along for the ride. Yeah, he said it many times. He's like, hey, thanks for making me do that. Uh, <laughs> number three, do good without expectation. What oh, does man. that mean? Dude, this is so cool. Um, my friend, Greg Lucas, uh, the CrossFit Traveler, Mm-hmm. He he has these shirts that just say "Be Awesome," but I was sitting, you know, he, he we were sitting there talking, and he's just like, "Just be good." He's like, "Don't do good with the intention that it's going to come back to you." Oh yeah, that and, happens a lot. People are like, "Well, why?" Well, would people I do that? can like, tell, 
right. Just, just immediately. Right. Yeah. Or, or just like paint the whole concept of paying it forward. He's like, don't pay it forward. <clears throat> just pay it. And I was like, what, what, what do you, what do you mean? He's like, mm. just That's gangster, man. do good without ever thinking that life is going to give good back to you because it most likely won't. You're going to have to carve that out for yourself. But if you are good to people without expectation, they're going to hopefully be good to other people and just creating this, this higher level of just being good people. I know it sounds so obscure and left field, but it's, it really is kind of cool to, to just put good out there and being like, nope, I'm just going to let it go and let it run its course. And it's, it's pretty cool. But like if what, you don't what can you contribute? It, you're never like, when is this going to come back to well, like me? People will ask you like Christmas, like what, what do I, here's all the things I love and here's what I want to do. I don't know what to do. Like what, how can I like move forward? And whatever the, the question may be, wouldn't you just start with this by saying, what are you uniquely qualified to give? Like, what is the thing that you could give? Like what, what, what about your background? What skill sets? What things are you interested in right now that could help somebody? If you just pour yourself into that, man, you'd be amazed at what comes out the other end, right? Uh, I think a lot of time, uh, with respect to what you were just saying, people ask the wrong question. If someone wants to come into the fitness industry and be a coach, for example, they might ask, am I an expert? Am I the best? Right. You know, it's kind of like the, the, the competition thing. Am I, am I already the best? And if I'm not already the best, then I don't want to compete. It's the same thing with becoming a coach. A lot of people think, well, I, don't, I couldn't be a coach because I'm not the best already, as if anyone that started coaching was the best when they started. Instead, I was terrible in the beginning. We, 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 we all, all were. were. So what people should <laughs> we be all asking, cringe, man. We all people cringe. should be asking instead isn't, am I the best? Am I, am I the best nutritionist? Am I the best coach? Am I the best weightlifting or weightlifter? That's not what they should ask. If they want to become a coach, they should ask, do I have the ability to help people who are a level below me? Right. That's what they should be asking. Ooh, yeah. But ultimately, yeah. you want to be a coach? Mm-hmm. Well, what do you do? You you try and teach a class and you realize, oh, gosh, this is difficult. How do I start developing this skill? Mm-hmm. Um, going to weekend seminars or online education, mm-hmm. those things will help develop those skills. And, and like what you said, then you start teaching somebody that's, below you or less experienced or even better experienced and get feedback the most important thing you do is just start it doesn't matter how small it is it doesn't matter this is not going to be your destiny forever you Mm -hmm. won't always be this little small thing just start and see what happens Mm -hmm. all right let's move on to point number four actually the last two are my favorites yeah uh number four is learn to put yourself first sometimes like in my nutrition seminars women are like well i have to cook a dinner for my husband and I have to cook a you know separate meal for all three of my kids and I'm looking I'm like why mm-hmm. she's like well they don't eat the same things and then they like they they're there because they want to better themselves they want to find a way to to eat for their life and you know I'm like first you have to have your your community on board you have to talk to your family and have them support you in this endeavor so you're bringing them together and that even is selfish mm-hmm. um, saying hey so look I'm going to do this for me and I yeah. need you guys to support me and that may mean that you guys eat some meals that you don't want to and then I kind of playful I'm like look if you are cooking the meals they're going to eat what you cook so be selfish of like this is my food you can eat it either eat it with me or you can cook your own thing yeah, this, is a, this is leadership <laughs> this is lead, lead, leading your family your kids shouldn't lead the family when it comes to something as yeah. important as fucking oh, nutrition yeah. and I tell people I'm like look I don't have kids but I, I've seen you know a lot of my friends a lot of my family and I've seen them work this aspect um, don't bring it in the house if you don't want to eat it but you know otherwise it's you being selfish for something that you need in your life or changes feeling like it's not 
right for you to take time for yourself to get back in shape or to go to the gym before right. you come home to the kids. People will give themselves too much to their kids. That's what you should do, right? Question mark. But then you realize that you can't be an optimized ass-kicking mother if you don't do the things you need to do for yourself first. Absolutely. So you can give more to your and kids. And you're setting a better example for your children. Point number five. My favorite. Purge the negativity from your life. Oh, my gosh. Just stop <laughs> saying I can't. Um, yes, you can. Maybe not today, but eventually. you are like, I can't do that. Well, of course you can't do that because you believe that you can't. Mm-hmm. Just say, I'm working on it. It's I'm a work in progress. You have to put it into a context that it, you are in the process of and that you will eventually. And stop taking that no I mean stop putting that no or that not into it and mm-hmm. that that always like you always like like um undercut yourself mm-hmm. you know I, I hear this all the time especially with people in the gym or um with, with nutrition or just in life they're like oh I can't do that I'm like look if I was able to pull myself out of a ditch and and get myself to ground zero and then build from there and be able to be where I am today everybody can do something that is good for themselves. And it's, it's just so frustrating to hear such a, a blanket of negativity um, around people that they just don't even know it's there. And they're just restricting themselves all the time in every mm-hmm. single part of their life. Yeah. I get mad really, about it. <laughs> I know some high-performance communities uh, say like a group of like uh, Navy SEALs or, or something like that. And I'm not sure if they actually do this in Navy SEALs or not, but like high-performance groups like that in some settings, they – they won't tell you that instead of saying I can't, you have to say I can mm-hmm. because that, in some sense that, that is unrealistic because not everything is, is possible today, even right. if you can get to it eventually. So instead, you'll, you'll be corrected and it's, and it's almost against the rules <laughs> to say I can't. You'll be corrected to say I won't instead of I can't right. because you can do it. You're just oh, choosing not to. And so right. you have to say I won't. Yeah. That way it, it, it really sinks in that you are making a choice right now to not do something not because it's not pro- not possible, but because you are actively choosing not to, and that's your own psychology. That's your own mm-hmm. um, decision internally that you're not going to do something, and it's not because the, the world's holding you back. It's because you are holding you back. Right. You got to be careful what you say and what you pretend to be, and how you and the the friends you surround yourself with, because these are the conditions that make you exactly what you are. Like whatever you pretend to be is what you are. That mindset will limit you or allow you to push forward. That's the truth, man. Yeah, I like what Doug was saying, too. I, as a coach, I like to say people go, oh, I can't do that. I go, oh, you're right. And then they go, <laughs> what? what? You're supposed to like, like, say, no, like, come on, get it together. Of what the coach is supposed to say, I go, <laughs> yeah. you're right. And they're like, and then they're like, almost like, why? I was like, well, the fact that you believe that you can't means you can't. And then, I tell people a then, lot of my athletes, you know, they come in, they're like, well, I don't know, I don't know, or I can't, or whatever. And I'm like, why Why can't you? Like, just give yourself the opportunity to amaze yourself. Because a lot of the times you'll be surprised. You're so much more capable of doing things that you didn't know you were doing <coughs> if you just give yourself a, a chance. Try it. Try new things. Give yourself a chance. But I, I always say, I'm like, give yourself an opportunity to amaze yourself. Mm-hmm. And most of the time it happens. And that's a great way to end. Give yourself the opportunity to amaze yourself. That's that's pretty awesome. But as awesome as that was, that is actually not one of her habits that I want to focus on. The one I really, really want to focus on for the purposes of this episode is when she talks about giving without expectation. 
Because giving without expectation is such a huge part of marriage and such a huge part of relationships. Because if you're keeping score, most likely you're keeping selective score, right? You're only noticing certain things. And I'll share with you guys one really wise piece of advice that my mom gave me uh, on the day I got married. She kind of pulls me aside and goes, now make sure in this marriage that you do 75% of the work. And I was like, 75% of the work? Why Why would I do that? Isn't this supposed to be a, a 50-50 sort of proposition, you know, where partners were in this, in this for the long run, you know, each carrying our weight? And my mom goes, no, you need to do 75% of the work because if you think you're doing 75% of the work, you're probably actually only doing 50% of the work and then you'll be just fine. So that was a cool piece of advice from my mom. But the, the, the main point I'm driving here is that if you do stuff without expectations, right, you're doing stuff for your spouse, right, you're learning their love language, you're doing the stuff that they appreciate, you're not doing it out of obligation, you're not doing it to get something in return, you're doing it because you love your spouse. And even if your spouse is the cranky one or the unloving one or the one that's not really doing all the things you want them to do, just like in the interview with Shante Feldhan, if you start doing those things, if you, it just takes one person. And if you are that one person, if you are that bigger person, eventually the other person's going to come around. So here's the takeaway from the episode, right? You want to be that person that decides to, to stop that crazy cycle. And how do you do that? Basically, by giving your spouse the benefit of the doubt, right? So choose to believe the best in your spouse and give without expectations. And actually, that's going to be your hack homework for this episode. I want you to give without expectation. I want you to do something for your spouse and not expect anything for it. So pick one of the love language. Anyone will do, but let's go with acts of service since that's pretty straightforward and easy to understand. I want you to do something for your spouse that you normally don't do. Maybe do the dishes, take the car to fill it up with gas, take the garbage out, mow the lawn, put the kids to bed. And here's the kicker. I want you to keep doing this thing until it's unnoticed. And what do I mean that by that? Well, if, if you do something nice, let's just keep it really simple here. Say you do the dishes and your spouse doesn't say anything. I don't want you to be mad at that, right? You're, you're not doing the dishes so your spouse can say, hey, thanks for doing the dishes. Like that's not your motivation, right? That's just you keeping track of things and trying to get recognition. I want you to do the dishes because you, you love your spouse and that's one less thing for your spouse to do. And if your spouse happens to recognize that act and say thank you, I want you to to do it again. And I want you to keep doing it again until doing the dishes is expected and becomes commonplace. When just getting things done becomes part of your new normal, you're starting to take really big strides toward just being excellent and being an all-around good spouse. Basically, long story short, I'm asking you to raise the bar in your marriage, not for accolades or recognition or validation, but just because you truly love your spouse. And I just use the acts of service love language doing the dishes as a really simple example. You could do you could do something with any of the other love languages. Quality time, words of affirmation, uh, get creative. But uh, long story short, give without expectations. Choose to believe the best in your spouse and start to raise the bar of excellence in your marriage. 
So that's it for this episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this girl power episode. I think both guys and girls can learn a lot from it. And we will see you around next time when we talk about the one thing guys truly want in a marriage and the one thing women truly want in a marriage. And it takes some folks 10, 20, 30 years to figure this out, if they ever figure this out. So you definitely want to check out the next episode. Until then, we'll catch you later. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action. Keep hacking and stacking your way to success.